Teamsters, I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience. Where two friends pick two topics and find intersectionality. Yes, we do. Or we don't. <laughs> or not. Did I say or not? You did not, but oh, I like the yes we not. do. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I'm at right now. <laughs> oh no. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Um I think every single day this week I've had this moment of um Maybe I should quit my job and just podcast full-time oh. or be a pilot full-time or do something else full-time. <laughs> Other than what I'm doing Other than what I'm for currently employment. Doing. Yep. Um, and I feel great about that. So how are you? <laughs> I'm good. I got the birthday girl sitting next to me. <laughs> birthday girl in the house. In the house. She's looking real fresh. Real cute. Dolly Parton just turned three, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Happy birthday, Dolly. We are amongst a celebrity. It's pretty uh, phenomenal. So I love that when you texted me this week and you said it's Dolly's birthday today, I had to ask which Dolly because we have celebrated yeah. the actual Dolly Parton's right, birthday the real, before. The real Dolly. Yeah. You know, I have those photos from when we saw her at that banquet oh, in Raleigh. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'll have to post NBD, those. But my mom got to interview Dolly Parton. Yeah, she did. Um, on stage. And then Dolly sang Jolene. She sure damn did. For all of us. It was so good. But we celebrated her birthday before. On, on Netflix, there's that really funny movie with Jennifer Aniston. What is it called? Oh, Dumplin'. Dumplin'. I was like, yep. Bumpkin? No. Nope. <laughs> nope. Dumplin'. Dumplin'. And yeah. they celebrate uh, Dolly Parton's birthday every single year. So we decided to one time, and I made my famous award-winning pasta. Yeah, so when it was this Dolly, our, your Dolly's birthday, um, it hit me that we have never told our Teamsters about our pasta. About so we the talk fucking about pasta, pasta <laughs> recipe. It's literally the best thing in the entire world. It's the reason that we started a podcast was to be able to share to share this, this pasta fucking pasta recipe. recipe. Yeah. So and just to piggyback off that too, we haven't really talked about our Patreon a ton. Oh, we should do that too. And so you know, we are an independent podcast. So it is fully funded by yours truly and the one with the bangs over there. Me. Yep. So yeah. So, you know, Patreon is a really fantastic platform where patrons of, you know, art and content creators can support, you know, other people who are who are making content. And so we have three tiers that are set up for people to contribute to. At a certain level, you do get to pick a topic for us as we saw last week yep and um it's just a way to help support the show because we have our fantastic uh actual angel ashley and jacob beeson who work really hard to help us you know produce this podcast so it's really important to pay our artists and editors and anybody who's in the you know art industry so patreon really helps us support them also jump on this pasta recipe i mean we have (laughs) practically lived on this same pasta recipe for the past five years 30 years (laughs) 30 years 30 years making it at the very least no it's really it's really good also and it's vegan guys well and you can make it you can make it you can throw some meat in it if you want to i use well i can't really talk about what i use because 
because it's a surprise. It's an exclusive. Yeah, but it, you can totally you can you can make it your own. Throw some cheese on it. Hella good. Soup dubs good. Get into it. Also, we've had some really fantastic reviews on Apple Podcast, which really, really helps us so much. So thank you guys so much for doing that. We are currently giving stickers and buttons out to people who have really, just really funny and clever and um, reviews. Like, oh, I really so love sweet. the sweet ones. I know. My, the, the ones that I love the most are just, you know, the whole concept of the book club without the book, which I think is totally accurate. It's totally us. Also, I run the, the hosting website that figures out, you know, how to do all the things so that you can find us wherever you find your podcasts. I don't know a thing about it. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you for doing the social media because I absolutely (laughs) cannot you and I are so well suited to the jobs that we assigned ourselves. <sighs> but it gives me a list of like the countries that our podcast is being downloaded in. And mm-hmm. I would love to share some of those with Ooh, you. Oh, please so do. Cool. I'm going to do a few shout outs. Okay. Shout out to Germany. Yes, Germany. All of Germany representing. Yeah, darling. We've got France. Oh, wee oui, wee. Oui. The Bahamas. The Bahama Mamas. Uh, the United Kingdom. Ooh. And we have a new friend who's going, or a old friend who's going to be moving to the United Kingdom is, soon. So we'll that be is correct. boosting some listenership there. Sure. Our neighbors to the north, the Canadians. I was hoping you would say that so I can say that exact joke. <laughs> you stole it from me. Canada. New Zealand. Slovakia. Cool. Which I love. Um, I've been, I was in Slovakia for exactly six hours. Ooh. Um, over Thanksgiving 2019. <laughs> it was wonderful. I loved the country. Slovakia, very or cool. Or at least the one city I saw. It was snowing that day. It was beautiful. Australia, your homeland. Oh, yeah. Your father's homeland. Brazil. And Greece. And Greece. Oh, and India. Awesome. Yep. You know, the thing about Australia is it's definitely not my family. Like, I already know that, which makes me feel better that other people in Australia are listening to us. (laughs) Yay! So that's so awesome. I know. I cannot believe we have so many international friends out there listening. I love it. Hi, friends. Shout out to all of of you abroad. Um, Not just one, but many. Yeah. Tell all your international friends about us. We would love to just see this map get colored in more and more. Oh, yeah. Maybe as we start traveling again in a post-COVID world, Mm -hmm. we can go visit all these countries. Oh, I would love to. We could have a little road trip. Road trip? Get me the fuck out of here. Seriously. Right? (laughs) Ready to go. At least every time I see you, at least once we talk about how much I and you and we are ready to travel again and do shit My body is ready. Yeah. My body is also ready to hear your topic for this week. I'm so glad (laughs) that you are prepared. What a transition. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this week, I am going to be covering um, a little pop psychology, a little popular psychology. Okay. Pop you hooler, if you will. (laughs) Oh, I will. So this basically means that it's kind of a highly contested topic, but and there's really very little research to back it up, and there is some research to disprove it. I'm going down a rabbit hole. Um, It's totally fine. (laughs) So we're going to be talking about birth order. Oh, 
Okay. Yep. So go ahead and start thinking. I know that you are the youngest of two. Yeah. So. There's only two of us, so it's really easy. Yep. To so have your siblings' name. Yeah. Have your sibling stories prepared. Okay. You have just. Let me. I gotta start thinking about them. Yeah. Start working on that. So because this is pop psychology, if you find it useful for you or if you enjoy it, then feel free to use it. If not, at least you'll know what other people are talking about when they talk about birth order. Mm-hmm. Is this kind of like your horoscope, where sometimes it fits you and sometimes completely not? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh-huh. That's exactly what this is. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Sort of. So, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but a lot of it is like there are general overarching themes that apply to different groups based on your birth order, Mm -hmm. but none of it is for sure. Gotcha. But we're going to start back in the early 1900s. I would also like to let you know that Gen Z is calling the 1990s the late 1900s. Huh? The 1990s are now the late 1900s. Why would they say that? Get the fuck out of here with your side part. <laughs> Middle part. Oh, all yeah. That they good have stuff. See, yep. I'm fucking it up. Damn it, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to talk about Alfred Adler, who was born in 1870 mm-hmm. and died in 1937. Okay. Um, he was besties with Sigmund Freud. Oh. And oh, Carl God. Jung. Or contemporaries of Carl Jung, but he was besties with Sigmund Freud. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. Do we like him? He's fine. Okay. I mean, no strong opinions. Okay. So he's an Austrian. I wrote Australian, but I'm pretty sure I'm an Austrian <laughs> psychiatrist. And he was the first to theorize that your birth order actually influences your personality characteristics, like your temperament, your sociability, and your motivation. He believed that your birth order can impact multiple areas of your life including the way that you make friends, the ways that you experience and express love, and how you work. Huh. Yeah. All that. All, all the things. When thinking about birth order, it's also important to note that there are other factors that are related to the development of personality, including your family size, the sex of each child, if you've had any siblings who have passed away, your relationship with your parents, how critical your parents were in your life growing up, like different family blendings due to either death or divorce. So there are a lot of different factors that go into this. It's not just as simple as if you're the firstborn or the only child or middle oh, yeah. child or whatever, that um, these are things that are going to apply to you. What we've realized is that most likely parents impose their own thoughts about birth order. Like birth order is a really common topic. Sure. Most parenting magazines have articles about birth order and how it impacts kids. So there's a lot to be said for like the self-fulfilling prophecy. Parents assume that their oldest child is going to be X and therefore they raise their oldest child to be X. So whether this is actually about, you know, is it inherent to you or is it something that was taught to you right that's interesting i mean it makes a ton of sense i think like middle children specifically and i'm sure you'll get to this but middle child syndrome yeah we're getting there i've got a whole got a whole section about it (laughs) okay so according to adler's definition birth order is broken down into five categories the only child the firstborn second born middle child of at least three Mm -hmm. and the youngest excluding second children Gotcha. Okay. Most people now only consider four categories. So only child, first child, middle child, and youngest. Hmm. And I'm going to like do a few background notes before we actually get into each of the categories because I think that's what is most interesting is sure. each of the categories. The first quick note is birth order starts over after four to six years. 
So if you have a sibling who is more than six years older than you, and there's no kid in between you and the next oldest, um, then theoretically you could both be raised as firstborn children. Wow. That's crazy because my mom and her, the next sibling, Uh they're 10 years apart. Yeah. So they would both be firstborns. Wow. And then her and her youngest sister are 14 years apart. Wow. I cannot imagine being 14 and my mom being like, I'm pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) No. Yeah. No, me either. Also, if a child is born with a significant physical or neurodevelopmental disability, then they, that child may retain the youngest position regardless of birth order. So for example, if um, your older sibling had some kind of disability, you could still be raised as a firstborn, even though they're older than you technically, because their needs Mm -hmm. reinforce more of a youngest child mentality. There's also the phenomenon of firstborn male. So this is where Mm. the sex or gender of kid comes into play. Yeah. So for example... I am the oldest of two Mm -hmm. biological siblings, but my little brother, Jacob, is the firstborn male, Mm. which means that he is... He inherits the kingdom. He inherits the kingdom of God. Um, (laughs) Where does that leave you, you Satanist? (laughs) It explains so much, really. I meant Um, heathen. Satanists are fine. Whatever. (laughs) Whatever you want to do. I meant heathen. Sorry. (laughs) Basically, what it means is my little brother has a lot of firstborn characteristics despite having an older sister he's also the youngest so he's like the youngest firstborn male mom's favorite oh like all these things so growing up she always told us that like she would always tell me that jacob was her favorite Mm -hmm. and then she would always tell jacob that i was her favorite or at least she told me she would always tell jacob that i was her favorite (laughs) Oh, so, so I, many conversations need to be had. I know. My dad would say you're my bestest youngest. Oh, that's cute. I'm the youngest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Siblings are so weird. Mm-hmm. But I very distinctly, like even now, if I'll say something about Jacob or Jacob says something about me and we're both in front of my mom, she'll still say, well, it's because so-and-so is my favorite. Mm. And really, at this point, my brother's best friend is her favorite son sure. and our exchange student from high school is her favorite daughter well there you go so you're both sol yeah both of us have been written out at this point <laughs> neither of us the inherit will. the kingdom bye-bye <laughs> it's really funny so jacob's best friend and i have the same birth month he is like two weeks younger than me and my mom does not post on facebook at all and i've already given her so much shit for this story so i know <laughs> she's gonna love hearing it again on the pod But my mom doesn't post on Facebook. And out of the blue, she decided to post on Jacob's Best Friend's Facebook page for his birthday. And she posted a picture. I didn't even know she knew how to post a picture on Facebook. It's complicated. She figured it out. And she posted a picture of Jacob and his best friend. And she said, happy birthday to my favorite son. Oh. And everyone started complimenting or started commenting saying, oh, happy birthday, Jacob. And Jacob was like, I appreciate it. My birthday's not this month. Uh huh. And she just opened this whole can of worms. Mm, mm, so mm. clearly, neither mm. of us are actually the favorite. Do we get into. So these are biological children with having the same parents or just growing up in the same house? So Stepchildren? We don't talk a whole lot about blended families because mm-hmm. so there's some really interesting dynamics within blended families. Mm-hmm. There's also interesting dynamics in adoption, like specifically adoption. Sure. But what we're really looking at is kids who grew up in the same home. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the way that adoption might impact this is, say, you have you're adopting a kid who is older than other kids in the family. Mm-hmm. You're not only ca- taking into consideration the family that they grew up in and what their birth order was and their family of origin Mm -hmm. and how that impacts their personality, but also coming in and now being the oldest, the middle, or the youngest in a new family and how that changes all family dynamics. Sure. And, like, internal, your own identity and and those dynamics. Yeah. So there's a lot lot of variance. Yeah. There are so many different kinds of families. There are. And so many things to celebrate, and I love it. Yeah. Also, if you're saying this theory is like, eh, then we can speculate as much Wildly. as we want. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I feel like I'm just, I think you're the smart one. I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get into that. I actually made a comment. You did? Yeah, in my notes. Okay. But in 2019, a bunch of researchers started to debunk Adler's theory, stating that um, it's more actually about parental treatment and perceived notions about birth order. They're responsible for these characteristics than actual birth order. So how many times can we have the nature versus nurture conversation on the same podcast? Probably once a week for hopefully years. Yeah, the limit does not exist. Like, we will will continue to come back to this. I'm so glad we covered that early on in epigenetics. Mm -hmm. But a study of more than 20,000 participants revealed that there's really no significant effect of birth order on the big five personality traits that they were measuring. So what are those big five personality traits? I'm so glad you asked. Mm -hmm. Yes. Tell me more. Extroversion, emotional stability agreeableness, which I don't think is a word. I think they made that shit up. (laughs) Conscientiousness and openness to experience, which ultimately only proves that a person's personality isn't based solely on position in the family. There are obviously other factors like socioeconomic status, parental attitudes, gender roles, social influences, Mm. etc. So let's get into birth order. Let's get into it. Talk about it. I had so much fun. So let's get into it. First, we will talk about only children. Mm. Um, A rare breed. (laughs) So only children are called like the super firstborn. They tend to have like all the firstborn characteristics kind of taken to the extreme. Okay. And a lot of this is because they get tons of attention from adults, and most of their early interactions involve individuals that are significantly older than them. They don't have as many playmates that are about their age, which causes them to be leaders. They're super dependable. They can also be demanding, unforgiving, private, and highly sensitive. Mm. Have you, do you know, do you have any friends that are only children? Um, I dated an only child once. I don't think I have a lot of only yeah. It's a friends very unique, who are only children. I mean, yeah, I remember. I, I've only had like a handful, but they do have a very specific kind of personality. They do. Yeah, I'm trying to think who do I know that's an only child. Not not many people, honestly. Not anybody I'm willing to talk about on the podcast. That's fair. <laughs> Let us know if you're an only child. Oh, that should be a fun. That could be a fun Instagram uh, quiz mm-hmm. to find out if we have any only children. Mm, I'm sure there's got to be a ton in the Instagram universe. One survey showed that only children are perceived to be more self-centered, attention-seeking, unhappy, and unlikable than those who grew up with other children. And we honestly all know why. They really just didn't have anyone to hold them down and dangle spit over their face until they said uncle. Oh, God, no. No, <laughs> flashbacks. 
You were totally the younger sibling, though. You would have been the one to hold down. No, your... are you kidding me? I was huge. I like beat the shit out of my older sister. <laughs> <laughs> I very specifically, and I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to do this is. My brother and I have so many great sibling stories, mm-hmm. but I so specifically remember him like penning me I down can't, and I like spread his my it was so tonight. I can't, I can't, I can't. Okay. Um, f- another fun fact is there has never been a U.S. president who was an only child. Huh. We'll get more into that in just a moment. So let's talk about firstborns. Firstborns have approximately 3,000 more hours of quality time with their parents between the ages of four and 13 than any of their other siblings will ever get. This means that they may exhibit some of the same characteristics as an only child until their next sibling comes along. They're natural leaders, high achievers. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) And very organized, which is the one that I just don't feel like I fit. Yeah. I'm organized, but in very, like, micro ways. My, not microwaves. chaos. Yeah, I have very organized chaos. They also tend to be bossy, people pleasers, and rule followers. That's interesting. Both my parents are the oldest of three. It's so interesting. I was doing, as I was doing this research, they said that people who are the same birth order as their partners don't tend to, like, work out for long periods of time. But I know a lot of... Hmm people who do like i know a lot of firstborns who date other firstborns that's or, interesting or married to other firstborns, my parents so have been cool. married for like 35 years so the pairing that was most likely to work out was youngest to youngest firstborns are also less likely to smoke cigarettes than their siblings mm. uh just kind of a random fun fact the marijuana cigarettes those two <laughs> <laughs> they are more likely to be biology majors or medical students I am neither. They are more likely to become CEOs, and they are more likely to make at least $100,000 more annually than their siblings. What? Bitch, where's my money? (laughs) That doesn't seem right. So I think that, again, some of this is, it sounds like a firstborn male thing, or Mm -hmm. like if the firstborn child is male, then there are likely to make $100,000 more than the, annually than their younger siblings. Mm-hmm. I went into social work. Yeah, my sister's a librarian. Yeah, neither of us also, as firstborns are making more money. There's pay discrepancies between gender Yeah, regardless of birth order, so that's not surprising. But $100,000, that's fucked up, and yeah. I do not appreciate that. Same. Some famous firstborns. Ooh. Zac Efron. Oh, okay. well, that is not what I thought was going to come <laughs> out of your mouth. Angelina Jolie. Okay. Brad Pitt. Oh. Chuck Norris. And that, that's the person. The Queen Bee. Oh. Beyonce. So glad to have her amongst our ranks. Sure. Yep. Okay. So let's talk about second born. Zach Efron? I'm still stuck on that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It was so random. It was like famous people. I was like, oh, he is a person who exists. He does. I mean, I mean he's, he's in Greatest Showman, which is one of my faves. Yeah, and he's like a handsome, you know, kid. I mean, he's he's grown. Sure. He's got a dad bod now, haven't you seen? Oh, speaking of dad bods, did you see that Macaulay Culkin married Brenda Song, or is with Brenda Song, and they just had a kid together? Yes, I sure did. He uh, crawled out of some hole somewhere. <laughs> out of the mountains. Yeah, um, so I can't stop thinking about that since yeah. I saw it. You know... Anything is possible, I guess. If you believe. If you think your person is not out there, they just haven't crawled out of their, their little, little hiding place yet. yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
We just got to keep waiting. Waiting on the world to change. (laughs) All right, so let's talk secondborns or middle children. And to do so, we cannot skip over middle child syndrome. Middle child syndrome. In a world where there are middle children. There is middle child syndrome. So this is a common descriptor used to describe how middle children often feel ignored or like they're not seen as special because they are so often overlooked. Mm -hmm. Now, I called my mom on my way over here today to ask her a question about something unrelated to the podcast. Mm -hmm. And she asked me what my topic was for this week. Mm -hmm. And I told her birth order Mm. and that I was going to have to give her a shout out because she is a middle child. And her comment was, at least someone is shouting us out. Which just sounds like the most middle child I'd ever heard. Yep, I can imagine putting myself on those shoes you think you've made it. You're the youngest. You're yeah. the newest. You're the, you know, just think about Toy Story kind of, you know? That's what you're feeling. And then Buzz is new- coming in, fucking shit up, you know? And then all of a sudden, you know, then there's new ones. And, you know, and then you get thrown in a box and you got to move yep. across town. That's right. It's a hard you gotta life. You got to shimmy down a drain pipe. It's exhausting. Yep. You got to hide from Sid. Middle child syndrome is often associated with low self-esteem, jealousy, introversion, unfriendliness, and feelings of inadequacy. Yikes. (laughs) (laughs) Like at this point, the number of children... So to be a middle child means that the youngest or other children have already been born. Mm -hmm. So which means that suddenly the number of kids uh, outnumbers the number of parents, theoretically. Mm -hmm. So if you've got two parents and three kids then the oldest one is doing shit so they've got a parent who's going to ballet practice and soccer practice and all this other stuff and the youngest kid has a parent who's swooping in and like giving diapers and bottles so the Mm. middle child is naturally left out Mm -hmm. like it makes sense they also tend to perceive one parent as having bonded more with the oldest and one parent as having bonded more with the youngest Mm mm-hmm whether or not that's true but it's and same thing like if there's you know a single parent situation yeah i mean your resources and your energy is going towards the youngest which has more needs to care for which is why the, the older old- one's independent exactly potentially right yeah yeah theoretically they can feed themselves especially if they're matilda who's like <laughs> sitting on the counter making her own pancakes oh boy This unintentional overlooking of middle children isn't all bad. There's also the idea that it makes middle children more independent and more creative. Like you said earlier, they begin their lives sharing the attention of their parents and they have other children around them. So they're always like trying to catch up to their older siblings. You know, they're wanting to fit in with their older siblings and then they kind of lose this youngest child status and then start to have to share attention with the older and younger siblings. Here's a fun fact for you. Because really, so much of this research was just looking up random fun facts. It's perfect. There are more U.S. presidents who were second born or middle children than any other position. Second born or middle children. Like middle. Yeah. Like more presidents were middle children than any other birth order position. Wow. And so second second born would be in like a case of four or more children yeah. because you technically there's two middle there's still, children, right? Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Including Ooh. Donald J. Trump. Oh. Which makes so much sense to me. Or, yeah. Like middle children tend to believe that life is unfair mm. and like they're more secretive. They're, they tend to be more jealous and suspicious mm-hmm. and like they just don't ever feel like they really got the attention they deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, Speeches tend to be on a third grade reading level. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, he gave the best speeches. <laughs> Just ask anybody. <laughs> so I did go down a little bit of a rabbit hole here and found that more firstborn presidents were Democrats. Middle kids who became presidents were overwhelmingly Republican. And there were only like seven who were the youngest. And it was like 50, almost a 50-50 hmm. split. We'll let those statistics speak for themselves. Exactly. Knowing how middle children perceive fairness, this all checks out for me. I totally get that. Also, according to some data, you are statistically twice as likely to be a serial killer if you are a middle or oldest child than if you are an only child or youngest. Uh-huh. You're not feeling the love. So is, is intelligence associated mostly with an old, the older sibling? It is. So there is, I, I didn't quote the exact research just because I need to unpack this a little bit more for myself about why I feel icky talking about IQ is associated with birth order. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of research that suggests that the oldest child has a higher IQ and does better academically than younger siblings. Mm -hmm. And the research generally shows that it's because parents have more time when there's only one kid to dedicate to academics and education and teaching them things. So yes, oldest oldest and only tend to be... Oldest and only. That's yeah. fascinating. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I mean, I still think that I'm a very smart person. I think you're a brilliant person. But my sister does have, she took more AP classes. She went to Schmapple Schmill. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. Jacob, my brother, and I were talking about IQ a couple of years ago. And I think that my brother is brilliant. Um, me too. Yeah. I like him. I do too. He's so He's sweet. my little brother too. He is. Oh my god, I'm a middle child. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Except you didn't have to share a bathroom with him. My God. <laughs> oh, I'll share that story in a second. Anyways, but we were we were sitting on the couch and we were talking about something. And Jacob randomly makes the comment that he feels like his or my IQ is higher, but his EQ is higher, like his mm-hmm. Um, emotional emotional intelligence, intelligence is higher, yeah. which is so interesting because I think I'd always assumed it was the opposite. Like I am in social work and more the humanitarian, and he's like in the world of business, but he has a really high EQ, mm-hmm. especially when he like applies it. Yeah, I might argue the same thing with my situation also. And just yeah. to make the differentiation, Karian's brother's name is Jacob, but our editor's name is also Jacob. Yeah. They are two different people. They're cr- that is correct. They are we not said we were going to call our editor B, so maybe we should do that. We can do that. I think he agreed. He consented, right? I think so. Okay, perfect. I'll share one more sibling story at the very end. Okay. Right. Anyways, so let's get to the baby of the family. Mm, let's talk about me. Let's talk about you. The baby of the family gets lots of attention, not only from their parents, but also from their older siblings. They tend to be risk takers, more outgoing, and more creative. Mm-hmm. All of this checks out for you, I think. Yeah. They are also more self-centered. Yep. So let's talk about me. Uh-huh. <laughs> You're uh, not wrong. <laughs> uh, financially irresponsible, which I don't see as no. much with you. Um, and they get bored easily. Famous lastborns. Mm-hmm. And this is... So this is what I think is so interesting. I'm going to read out this list to you, and then we'll talk about... Okay what they all have in common. Uh, Eddie Murphy. Oh. Whoopi Goldberg. Yes, girl. Stephen Colbert. Okay. Jim Carrey. Steve Martin. And Charlie Chaplin. Oh, you got Zac Efron and I got all those <laughs> cool people. <laughs> I, got, I got Beyonce. Yes, yeah, true. 
Okay, but um, I think that this clearly explains why you're the comedian and I'm just the nerd. <laughs> like, you're nerdy too, but you're like a funny nerd and I'm just no, like a nerdy you. nerd. So we're going to blame it on the birth order. I mean, yeah, I think being creative was a way for me, you know, to go around, like having such a smart and like literally a genius older sister, you have to kind of figure out ways to get attention and feel noticed and so being creative and you know theater debate all of that stuff was right yeah yeah gotta find your place absolutely so i want to tell you about one more research article study thing that i found and then we'll wrap up so youngest males are more likely to be gay research has proven research done by ray blanchard and anthony bogart demonstrated that the probability of a man being gay increases for each older brother born to the same mother. Apparently, this has been confirmed across multiple studies, totaling over 10,000 subjects. Cool. And it's said to be the strongest known predictor of sexual orientation. Hmm. With each older brother that a man has, his odds of being gay go up by approximately 33%. Oh, wow. Isn't that crazy? That is fascinating. I know. So, like, the second half of the Duggar family is just, like, super gay. gay. Cool. Welcome to the family. So, then I had this question, and I looked for women and, like, any connection between birth order and being a queer woman. There's very little on uh, trans individuals or non-binary individuals just because I think that less research has been done. Sure. But there was no research to prove anything about females. But my theory, and this checks out with most of the people that I've dated, is that firstborn females tend to be more likely to be queer. I think it's... I have a hypothesis. I'm going to speculate wildly that you're more likely to be lesbian if you're the oldest female. Um, And then research has already proven that you're more likely to be gay if you're the youngest male. Mm -hmm. In a multiple, well, the more likely, the more brothers you have. Right. So interesting. Yeah. So, and I know that it's more likely that with male twins, Uh if one is gay, it's very most likely probable that they're both. Especially with identical, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think that this is especially interesting because it shows a genetic component to being gay that did not, like, that otherwise is difficult to prove. Sure. And the idea of nature versus nurture in terms of uh, sexual orientation is something that's come up over and over again. But this was one of the first things that I could find that tied being gay uh, and, and having a strong correlation with a genetic factor super cool yeah very very cool yep i just i I don't know the birth order is super interesting going back to like what you said earlier it is about preconceived notions about where you fit in but Mm -hmm. a lot of things that you said i don't know if it's like the horoscope mentality or whatever (laughs) some things that you said really did i feel like relate to my own situation with my sister yeah and people we know too like i'm thinking about some of my friends growing up Mm -hmm. and i tended to connect more i think with other people who are in the same place in their birth order Mm -hmm. and i don't know if that's just because of random like i'm being from a small town you kind of get mixed in with whoever you get mixed in with but i just think it's really interesting crazy Yeah. And it definitely checks out for me and Jacob, except that because Jacob is male and he was the second 
born, I see characteristics of being a firstborn male and being the youngest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He's really got a lot going for him. Yeah. I think it's interesting what you said about it resetting after, would you say, six years? There's There's been some debate. I saw anywhere from three to six years. Okay. So I think six years is the one I've heard the most. And in the book I read about birth order a few years ago, it said six. Six, yeah. So I'm going to go with six. So that's interesting with people who come from really large families. So if if you're having, you know, five, six kids, you know, what's the span of that look like? And how do family dynamics change and responsibilities among children as far as being caregivers to their younger siblings? Yeah. And there was also a lot of research um, about birth order and socioeconomic status and the size of families. So research shows that... um, Larger families tend to be lower in socioeconomic level. Hmm. Um, They're not just Catholics. Right. Like it's, I mean, some of it might be religious in nature um, or. I mean, the Quiverful movement, that's the, um, you know, prosper, like have as many babies that God will allow. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would argue religion has a lot to do with it oh i think it does too but you don't typically see people in really high socioeconomic levels having huge families Hmm. how much of your socioeconomic status and your family how much does that impact your personality too Mm -hmm. like if your parents are both working at least one job maybe more each then older children are naturally going to have to start to fill in some of these like leadership roles or parental roles within the family to take care of younger siblings. So you're reinforcing a lot of these personality things, not just because they're the oldest, but because of other things in society that are impacting the role they have to play in their family. But yeah, leave us a note. Tell us where you fall in this birth order thing and whether or not it applies to you. Are you a middle child? Do you want to talk about it? (laughs) Should you be in therapy? We We should should all be in therapy. We should all be in therapy. All right. So what do you have for us today? The medieval executioner of Franz Schmidt. Okay. Put on your big girl panties. All right. Yep. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) So when thinking of an executioner, you may envision kind of like a hooded man, possibly shirtless, maybe arms folded, kind of eager to... I'm imagining Cut somebody's head off. Yeah, I'm imagining a contemporary like dominatrix, Ooh, but a man that. in medieval Europe with a leather vest. I love a leather vest. Well, what I found from my research might kind of shock you because that whole stereotype is completely false. Not according to Monty Python. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> was it's, there an executioner in Princess Bride? No, there was the monk. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, continue. executioners were probably really similar to people that we would, like, we personally would hang out with. (laughs) (laughs) What does that say about us? So basically, they were weirdos who just happened to have, like, a terrifying and really anxiety-inducing job. Know anybody like that? Yeah. I know a few people like that, Mm -hmm. actually. The image has been reclaimed by media to portray a false identity of what we all believe today to be the truth about the executioner. It's pretty much as bad as it sounds. And in my research, the first question I personally had was, who the hell would want to have this job? And what I found was, generally, the job was chosen for you. 
That doesn't surprise me, um, mm-hmm. given the Middle Ages and just the lack of options. Like, you didn't have the option of, mm-hmm. you know, going to college. Entrepreneur. <laughs> starting your own podcast, right. becoming a pilot, right. whatever the fuck else. I mean, you're pretty limited. So. Bathing regularly. <laughs> it's not going to happen for you. It's never going to happen for you. In some cases, butchers which makes a lot of sense because the job does have an element of skill and precision. Mm -hmm. Um, And just a side note, piggybacking off the precision portion, a sword was one of the execution options and one strike across the neck was expected Mm -hmm. for for it to only take one. Right. Two was considered bad form. So if it takes more than one, it's not a good look for you. It doesn't, I mean... I, I hate a messed up execution. Right. It's one of my least favorite things. If you didn't get it on the third strike, then the crowd was likely to like rush the stage and either cut your head off or stone you, rip you to shreds, kill you. Think about everybody, you know, there's large crowds watching these executions. Mm-hmm. Everybody's drunk. This is, is the only form of entertainment they have. They, like, kick around rocks and shit. Yeah. Is so, this where, like, a hack job comes in? Like, yeah. The, the phrase, yes. a hack job? Yeah. Really? Yes, it is. Ooh. Yeah. So, you know, if you're going to be an executioner, you know, if you're going to insult me, do it properly. Yeah. You got to do the one. Yeah. Okay. So, criminals were also considered options for executioners, and they were forced to do the job in exchange for basically not being killed themselves. And oftentimes, these jobs were passed from generation to generation. So, you could be like, my great-great-grandfather was Mm -hmm. an executioner, and therefore, I am an executioner. And a lot of that was associated with the stigma of the job. So, in general, executioners were not loved and adored by the community. Mm -mm. They were generally marginalized in their communities. And the executioner trade was considered really similar to, like, people who worked in slaughterhouses or people who were grave diggers. I bet it was hard to find love as an executioner. Our guy, Franz, finds love, and it's really funny. Oh, good. We're going to cross that bridge in, like, just a second. I'm so happy. I mean, there's someone for everyone. But it's, like, very niche. Okay. I forgot for a moment that you were covering a specific person and not just all Mm -hmm. executioners. Well, this is a little bit of the background, just before we talk about fronts. Okay. So this could be where the image of the hooded man comes from, which is actually false. They didn't wear a hood? They didn't wear a hood. I really feel like every movie I've ever seen that had an executioner in it he was wearing a hood. So yeah. where does that come from? We're going to talk about it. I love that you have already anticipated <laughs> every question I, I got have. you. Smart ass. I it's got you. like we've been doing this for a few months now, mm-hmm. and you suddenly know me. <laughs> but the marginalization, like, so these guys were literally forced to, like, live at the literal edge of town. Okay. They were considered unclean. Okay. So they were forced. They were like the lepers. Like, yeah. we have to get them out of town. Yeah. They were considered unclean, essentially. And, you know. So some real similarities. Yeah. So where does the idea of the big bad executioner come from? Question mark. I saw you in my notes. (laughs) Well, by the 1800s, enlightened thinkers and scholars had all condemned the idea of torture. So basically, scholars were coming together and saying, what has been wrong about how we've been doing things the last thousands and thousands of hundreds of years? Pretty much everything is the answer. But (laughs) 
they were asking themselves does it really does torture really provide the truth is it cruel and these punishments were all carried out by executioners i feel like wait what year this is in the 1800s so 17 so Americans really I mean, should have I'm, paid a yeah. lot more attention here because we are still torturing people and we still have the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Like, we still have a- active executioners in the U.S. We do. And I didn't want to get too much into it. I don't talk about current execution or current right, we're talking about punishment. Franz. Yeah, we're talking about Franz. And also, it's just kind of icky to me. And I know we didn't really want to get into it. I know. I'm just like thinking if people were questioning this in the 1800s mm-hmm. and we're still doing it and it's 2021, mm-hmm. um, maybe that says more about us than I would really like for it to. Sure. So all these, all this critical thinking um, really began to kind of vilify the character of the executioner and in general kind of created stereotypes against the Middle Ages in general kind of became like a really cruel and ignorant time in the eyes of, you know, this new enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And as time goes by, execution eventually kind of happened more and more in private, less in crowds, more of like an intimate thing. And now, at least in most Western societies, it's done in private. Right. So let's go to our main man, Franz. 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 So Franz Schmidt Sounds German. Austrian was born in Bavaria. Bavarian. Mm-hmm. German, I was right. Yeah. In 1555. Call 555. Franz's father, Heinrich. So he was, ori- so his father was originally like a woodsman. However, one day he was extremely unlucky because he was picked out of a crowd by a government figure to perform a hanging of three random men. So he showed up and somebody was like, yo, you look like yeah. you want to kill these three guys. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo, Heinrich, it's you. Today's your shittiest day. They picked him out of a crowd. Can you imagine? No. It so, sounds like the Hunger Games. Yes. Like, I volunteer. May the odds be ever in your favor. Yeah. So he was forced to perform these executions, having zero training. And the other option was that he himself would be killed. They did not set him up for success. No, they sure did not. So after this, the man had a new career. (laughs) (laughs) Man, that shit sucks. I know. So you just think you're going to watch people die, and and all of a sudden you're the one doing the no. It's like crowd participation when you have anxiety. You're like, (laughs) do not call my name. (laughs) It's the worst. Like when you go to a magic show and someone, and then you get pulled (laughs) onto the stage. And they're like, we're going to cut you in half. When have like, you ever been to Please fucking don't. <laughs> At the, um, um, I hate audience participation. Nothing around, gives me uh, more anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> Dollar tickets. Oh, no, they were one cent. What, in that previous episode? Five cents? One cent? How Doesn't much were they? Too At much. the Victoria Theater? Yeah, Victoria Theater. Thank yeah. you. Franz... When he, you know, he grew up with his dad having this career of, you know, being an executioner. So this was Franz Sr. who got picked out of a crowd, not our guy Franz. Heinrich, which is the dad, was pulled out of the crowd. Okay, I'm with you. So Franz, when he was 18, he kind of took over the family business and he became an executioner under his father's supervision. At age 23, he became the executioner of the city Nuremberg. Uh, Where the trials happened. That is correct. That's all I know about Nuremberg, honestly same he worked under the chief executioner so he was like junior executioner kind of a step down 
apprentice executioner, if you Thank will. Thank you. That was the word. So he married his boss's daughter. That's fortuitous. He married the chief executioner's daughter. Her name was Maria Beck, and they had seven children. It's a lot of middle children. That's a lot. A lot of therapy. Uh-huh. That's a lot of... of How many of them became executioners? Because we know that middle and oldest children are more likely to be serial killers. And I feel like an executioner would be a great job. Serial killer adjacent. Yes. Yeah. And um, I wonder how many of them made $100,000 more than their (laughs) (laughs) younger siblings. Probably only the oldest. And he eventually became the chief uh, executioner after his father-in-law. So executioners made really good money, you know, Enabling Franz to afford a large house and plenty of comforts. Just not around other people. Right. Well, and we'll we'll cross that bridge in a second, but the benefits would have had to have been outstanding, I would think, for the job. Yeah. Just so that he wouldn't like run the fuck away. What's really interesting about him is that while he did work as an ex- executioner, he also kind of had a side hustle, which was a healer. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Uh-huh. All right. Um, sure. Yeah. I guess you got to ba- balance out your moral. Sure. You know, your soul. Yeah. Make sure, you know, if you weigh it against some feathers. Yes, exactly. 42. 42. He also, like, once he retires from being an executioner, he does move into be- doing healing full time. Oh, good for um, him. And Some he- energy work. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and he is said to have given medical advice and treatment to over 15,000 consultations. Look at him. Mm-hmm. You know, so much of this, like, I'm just thinking about the Hunger Games. And Hamish, isn't that the guy who, like, mentors Katniss? It is. And they're, they had, like, Victor's Row that was on the outside of yeah. the town a little bit. But yeah. they had really nice houses and, yeah. like, all the food they could want. Yeah. But it was an exchange for having to kill all of these people. I wish I could read those that series for the first time. It's oh so my gosh. good. We should have a movie night soon oh, and catch that. up on the Hunger Games. We need to get this book club together. Yeah, we do. It is important to note that despite his career, Franz was really respected by the community, probably because of his healing capabilities. And part of the reason that we still talk about him today and still really respect him today is because he documented his whole life. <gasps> Love that. So 1550s is the kind of the time we're thinking, right? Um, 1555 is when he was born. So we're in like 1580 right now. Okay. So he's illiterate. No, we're not in 1580 quite yet. Okay. He was 23 when he took over. Oh, wow. That's young. <laughs> but I love that he documented everything. Um kind of surprised that i don't know when like literacy would have been widespread in germany um but it's it's great that he was able to do that yeah so he kept a diary and his diary entries included dates places methods of execution and information about basically the condemned and their crimes so it's really the most key piece of text that we have to know what the life of an executioner might have been like during that time hmm so what are the options of execution well we've talked about hacking away at someone's head with a sword with a sword yes sword is a big one also rope or hanging yep we mentioned that you mentioned that burning joan of arc yes uh the breaking wheel which is, you know, the wheel. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking Morticia Adams. Uh-huh. 
Um, She's she fine, really loved that. She sure did. That yeah. was her kink for sure. <laughs> um, and drowning also, which is an interesting one. And this is a quote from Wikipedia. Quote, the wheel was reserved for severely violent criminals. Burning was reserved for, quote, homosexual intercourse and counterfeiting money. So those last born sons <laughs> would have really... It's uh, it's like counterfeiting money and like living your authentic self. It's so <laughs> fucked. Like those are in the same category. I hate uh, it. Well, and I guess heresy... So thinking 1500s, mm-hmm. heresy would have still been a thing that people were yeah. burned at the stake for. Yeah. Less burning. And witches? Um, yes. So burning specifically, he only discussed twice in his whole career over oh. his diaries. Okay. So one of which was for being gay and the other was for counterfeit money. Okay. Gotcha. So he didn't have like a specialty for the way that he would execute people. No. And this, and he was we'll, just kind of like a jack of all trades. We will, no, he was trained on all of them and we'll get to like how it was decided. Okay. What, which way you would go. But drowning was cr- prescribed for women who committed uh, infanticide. Ooh. Isn't that crazy? So for those who don't, who are unfamiliar with infanticide, it's killing, um, killing a child under the age of one year. Right. Presumably your own. Drowning was a popular option. However, uh, Franz and some clergy members stepped in to kind of make the sword the most common and popular, at least in his area, because the, the sword was considered the fastest and the most humane. I can see that. That's kind of why the guillotine yeah. became really popular. Right. Less cleanup, too. <laughs> Just throw a bucket under there. So Hans Vogel was the first convicted murderer that Franz executed in his new position. August 13th, 1577. Okay. So, so everyone to that point, you mentioned a gay person. So someone who was like laundering money or counterfeiting money. That was all like in in terms of his length of service. So okay. we know that based on his diaries. Right. So we're going, we're kind of, you know, we went forward and now we're kind of going back to his very first because I kind of want to give you like a, what the process that he wrote about looked like. Um, and this is like one of the most famous accounts. And um, it was for an actual murder. For an actual murder of an actual person. So Hans Vogel was convicted of murder and he was sentenced to die. It is important to know that if a person came into the executioner care, it was important for that person to be in good health before they were executed. So it was the executioner's responsibility to heal the individual before death. I'm thinking Princess Bride. They were mm-hmm. like, we got to yeah. yes. heal you mm-hmm. before we torture you mm-hmm. yeah. with the, uh, the guy in the tree. Is that where they were? Yes. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So that's same same vibe. Yeah, same vibe. Yeah. Yep. And I'm not. I I don't know where that comes from specifically, but it it was a motto of the time. You know, the person the to be in good you? health. Huh? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. That's funny. I like that. Um, but in particularly like really bad cases, if the person was super beat up or whatever, then they would even like postpone the execution to give the person time to heal. That just seems cruel and unusual. It like, is unusual. It. I mean. Yeah, <laughs> it's unusual wrong. and cruel. Yeah, yeah. Um, criminals could have visitors, so either the family members of the you know convicted, uh, and by criminals, I really want to rephrase that. I want to say the person convicted. Normally, in this situation, 
you know, documentation besides friends here wasn't the greatest. A lot of things yeah. were on hearsay, you know, so. Yeah, they didn't have our dazzling court system that oh, we have Jesus now Christ. that is never wrong. Uh-huh. So we have not wrongly convicted people and put them on death row ever. Sure, 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 sure. Either their families, like the families of the accused or potentially the family members of the victim, like in, in a murder case, potentially, um, could come visit. Um, and Franz was also to serve as a mediator in these uh, interactions. So executioner, as we are learning, has a lot more steps than we might have heard originally thought Franz was super like detailed in his note taking one of the things i did read about that i didn't notate in my notes but i did remember was that like there was somebody who had there was a murder case and what the the mother of the victim came to visit the accused and basically like brought him food and like forgave him And Franz, like, wrote about that really fondly in his diary about, like, compassion and how, you know, things are possible. And I think it might have been little things like that that kind of kept him together because this job is very taxing, to say the least. I'm sure that finding those little moments of humanity can, I mean, for any job that weighs on your being yeah like no matter what it is you have to hold on to those little moments of humanity yeah i've also i think the death penalty is really just interesting to read about and a lot of the research that i've done about the death penalty shows that families ultimately don't feel any long-term comfort after someone is executed Mm -hmm. so i think that like that's not where you find forgiveness. You don't find forgiveness and retribution. Yeah. Um, you really have to kind of do that Yeah. before. So that's really interesting. When I wasn't quite sure where I wanted to go with my research, I did do some research on like the American corporal punishment system. And the statistics I did see were that death as punishment is used less frequently in like the past 10 or 15 years. Yeah. People are less likely to be accused, or not accused, sentenced to death. I think it's kind of hopefully phasing out for us. I hope so. It needs Um, to. But, you know, you still sit on death row for 15 to 25 years, or even longer, depending on where you are. So the clergy would definitely visit you if you were um, imprisoned waiting uh, your execution. Um, They would try to kind of get you to confess your sins, and they would read bible verses and pray and they would often show illustrations and prayer books because not everybody was able to read at that time and they would kind of show you like look this is heaven this is hell this is what's up it's up to you this is what's down you're about to die (laughs) (laughs) and it was the exact same for hans vogel that day the clergy came to visit him they did kind of a prayer service and the idea with hans was just like any other it was to make an example out of him. So that's one of the reasons why executions were done in public, is it was kind of a general warning, right? I mean, also, there was no Netflix. So what else were people going to do on a Friday night You're not other wrong. than go and watch an execution, which is so fucked up. But It is. No, but the idea was to prevent crimes or sim- uh, you know of similar nature, although you didn't even really necessarily know what the crime was for the yeah. person. Yeah. Clearly, um, that doesn't work. It was the executioner's job to reaffirm both divine and human authority. 
And like you said, it was all very theatrical. And there were um, plays that took place and put on by the community, which portray a crime and then a confession and an exchange for a painless death, forgiveness and salvation. Like, it's all very theatrical. It's like, it's all, it just, you know, it's trying to wrap everything up in a bow. Mm-hmm. But um, Hans, like all others, could have requested a final meal. Beer was really popular as a final meal. I mean, if you got to go out, you might as well go out drunk. Right. Also, I mean, potentially, it would kind of make it easier for the executioner, I would think. It thins out your blood? Well, I'm thinking, like, incapacitating the person. Sure, it Depends on what kind of drunk you are, I guess. I mean, if it's tequila, then Mm -hmm. probably not. You're more likely to be dancing, but... It was was beer. Yeah. Because... It might mellow you out a little bit. Yeah. Is this humor too dark for people? Are people going to appreciate... I hope so. History... The point is, is that history is dark, and we should all be learning from it. True. Do not make me repeat myself. (laughs) Hans is then dressed in a white linen gown, and Frank escorts him for sentencing. Who's Frank? Franz. I wrote Frank. Oh. And Frank escorts him (laughs) for sentencing. So at this point, he's been sentenced to death, but has not been determined, like, how he's going to die until right before he's executed. I feel like all of this should have happened a lot sooner. I do, too. But it's also interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. I I, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. So Hans and Franz share a drink together. Franz asks for forgiveness from Hans for what he's about to do. And then they face the jury. So although Hans has already confessed, he does it again in front of the jury. And they vote and decide that he will die by sword. The general... So what happens next is that Hans walks a mile from the prison to the gallows or to the, you know, town town square. Executioner's block or whatever. Right. So remember that Franz needs to get this right the first time. Mm -hmm. Two strikes and you're out. Also, this is like his first time in his new job. Oh, yeah. Yikes. A lot of pressure. He does swing the blade and it is successful on the first time. And he does kill Hans with one strike. Franz says, quote, for that, I am thankful to God and my master who has taught me such an art. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. He sounds a little bit like Dexter. A little bit. Yeah. Mm. He gives me some Dexter vibes. Yeah. The brown button-up. Yep. Franz is then responsible for cleaning up the body and the oh. blood and disposing of the body. Like, he's got to clean up. Like, can you imagine if you have, like, five executions? Like, that's a busy day. <laughs> You gotta clean up between each one, yeah. and I just I feel like the uh, to preserve any sense of dignity, they should have at least hired somebody else to do that job. Sure, I mean, come on, right? Get, That's a lot for one person. He's already got to kill somebody and then clean it up. Yeah, he also has to like ask them for forgiveness, pray with them, heal them, have a beer. He's with exhausted. Them. It's a it's a long process, and this would have happened day after day, year after year. And France does have a happy ending. In 1617, he does retire from the biz, and he, cu- he does become a full-time healer. His diary contains the accounts of 361 executions and 345 other punishments, which would have been like flogging or cutting off an ear or a finger. And out of 187 people with a sword, only four times did he need a second strike. But not a once did he need a third. 
And that is the story of Franz Schmidt, the medieval executioner. I have learned so much. There were so many different movies that popped into my head and books. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to go back and rewatch all of them for accuracy now. I feel like an expert. Thank you. The one thing I hadn't thought about was... You know, we have this this ideology about, like, what medieval times looked like. And it's, like, all these crazy torture devices and shit. But, like, those things might have existed. But the, the facts and the statistics about how often they were used are not widely circulated. So I feel like after doing this research, I may argue that we're generally misinformed about that time period. Kind you of in general. Say. Mm-hmm generally misinformed about something that happened in history yeah huh huh um (laughs) i mean americans in general being misinformed about anything what hello i agree and i think one of the things that i find so interesting is like the the dramatic career change that happened for franz for franz's father oh wait going into healing yeah oh yeah yeah, and I wonder like what the correlation there is in seeing so much death and then healing people. Well, and it was his responsibility to heal people before they died, and so I think he just got really good at it. And I think But what does that say about society as a whole now? Is like if we could just heal people rather than, you know, criminalizing them or incarcerating them or whatever else. I also treat the issue right I also read statistics about how immediate death penalties like often in the this often in this time period executions were happening really closely after um being charged with with the crime right so as prisons increased and as capacities got larger then the time periods increased and and death you know, by uh, executioners or the death penalty slowed. Well, and prisons weren't privatized at this point either. True. So people weren't getting paid for having people in their prison systems. Correct. And when you're not profiting off of it, then you are less likely to have people in prison for long periods of time. Yep. Um, oh, what a tangled web. Yeah. It's really terrible. Everything sucks. Everything sucks. So how the fuck do these intersect? Well, Franz had five middle children. And I feel like that uh, might contribute to his overall well-being. Well, and he just generally seemed to be like a stand-up guy. Um, yeah. He seemed, he has like firstborn energy for me. You think so? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, he's... There wasn't any information I found or read about him having any other siblings Although it's not necessarily important to the narrative and as it relates to him, unless you're in an intersectionality podcast talking about birth <laughs> order and him. So this might be the first and only time that anyone has ever been like, yo, you got any siblings? Sure. In the past you heard it 600 here first. years. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I, I really don't know about intersectionality this week. So middle, middle ages, middle child, middle ages, boom, clap. They both have the word middle. Swing twice. <laughs> if you're out there, keep listening. <laughs> is that it? Are we calling it done? I think maybe that's it. I think that is it. Yeah. Um, that cool. is, and that's 
That's all she wrote, you guys. If you can come up with an intersection about this particular combo, shrimp Ooh. basket combo, what? Might be a stretch. I was thinking about torture and having siblings. No. No. <laughs> Too much of a stretch. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I genuinely feel like both of our topics were super interesting this week. Mm-hmm. Maybe the human connection just means that... That we're all human and we all have existed throughout time. Yeah. That's also, a great one. Ooh, ooh. I got a little tingle there. Ooh. Okay. Also, like, it's... Everybody has their lived experiences, and despite not knowing his birth order, like, all of that would have contributed to the way that he was as a person. Well, and looking Potentially, at how on- he was raised, yeah, um, and what his family dynamics were like, I think that the personality that he had to have cultivated to do the job that he did, Mm -hmm. again, might go back to nature versus nurture. Like, Mm -hmm. he was not inherently someone who had, like, this bloodlust and wanted to kill people. It was a job for him. So Mm -hmm. there was an element of nurture to developing his personality and seeing that from his father, too. Well, and also the fact that his options were limited. Yeah. He, you know, was, I mean, he grew up to be considered like a standing, you know, member of society, but like nobody was giving that to him at the age of 18 or to his father. So, or to his son, probably whoever inherited the, the top, the title after him. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, General plug, we have not mentioned before, but our website has our, you know, we include all of our sources. We also include all of the pictures that we include in our Instagram that discuss um, or go over, um, you know, the topics that we have every week. Yep. And we've got transcripts up there um, for anyone who may benefit from reading the podcast in addition to listening to it. Because sometimes we talk over each other. It's hard to hear. Sometimes. We frequently talk over each other. It's an imperfect system, but it works. It works. And also, again, definitely, you know, scoot on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Let us know what you think. And we appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you so much for listening. If you support us, blink twice. If you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcasts Without an Audience. Find us on social media at pod without an odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook or find us on the web at podcast without an audience.com. Shoot us an email at pod without an odd at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.